0: Let's just, do you want, I want Ozzy to, to say what episode it is in the very beginning. I want you to say episode six.
1: Oh, okay, cool.
0: So say it however you, however you want, and whenever you say episode six, we are recording One Hit Wonders of the
1: World. Do I just say episode six?
0: But, but say,
1: but give it some flair. Use some inflection. Some pizzazz. It's the first thing that listeners yeah. are going to hear. Yes. Okay. Um, can I do a bunch of them? Yes. Yeah. All right. Episode six. That sounds stupid. <laughs> Ep- <laughs> Episode 6. Episode 6. Episode 6. Episode 6. <laughs> Episode 6. of the world? Episode six <laughs> <laughs> that's the one we're using
0: that one that's that's the one hey welcome to one hit wonders of the world my name is maxin stenstrom my name is trevor Ickrath, and we are here with writer producer director and rapper nori aka austin jamal butler austin how are you today
1: hey you got all my titles right i did i did i, 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 re- like I, I
0: rehearsed that like mentally like you, for like a you few missed days. Illustrator. I did miss Illustrator. We'll, I'm sorry.
1: We'll get to that. I'm I'm not really like I didn't put that out there yet, so the world doesn't know. So it's okay. <laughs> it's a secret. But yes, I'm good.
0: It's a secret. But, hey, thank you for joining us again for another episode of One Hit Wonders of the World. Uh today we are going to be talking about the story of the Sugar Hill gang and the legend of Rapper's Delight.
2: You've prepared quite a story for us to go through today, Maxton. Dude, okay.
0: Here's the story of the story, because we might as well do that. I was going to give just the story of the members of the Sugar Hill Gang
2: uh, originally. That was my my first plan. Because even if you look at those three guys, there I feel like there's enough to dig into there. There is, but I felt like it would be kind of a
0: light episode. I didn't really want to do that because I felt like I was maybe doing a little injustice for, you know, giving this legendary song a light episode. So I did a little more digging and I found this huge Vanity Fair article that documents not only the history of the Sugar Hill gang, but also the entire history of Sugar Hill records. And because the story of Sugar Hill gang is kind of the story of Sugar Hill records and their aspirations and what they wanted to do. We're going to get into how the people in hip-hop communities in the Bronx and around the nation felt whenever Rapper's Delight was dropped.
1: X all day, Bronx City. Because it's
2: kind of like the first yeah. hip-hop song, right?
1: In a way. Uh,
2: yeah, it's the first recorded hip-hop song. Right. That's going to be important later on. Absolutely. Before we get into the entire Baxter, though, do you want to talk about our own personal takes on the track? I want Ozzy to go first. Obviously.
1: So after school, I take a dip on the pool, which is really <laughs> on the wall. I got a color TV so I can see the, the Knicks, Knicks playing, playing basketball. basketball. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's good shit. right? Yeah. Now. It's classic the shit. The next part is my favorite part in the whole entire song. But So that's, those are your favorite lines? Oh, his verse is my favorite. Verse. Big Bang Hank. Oh, yeah. Big Bang Hank. Big Bang Hank's sick, man. That guy's got crazy flow. It oh, was, We're going to talk about
0: Big Bang Hank today.
1: So, if we're talking about personal experiences with this song, I got a lot. My two favorite, I'll talk about my two favorite. The first one is discovering the song. I was, like, pretty young. I want to say, like, fifth grade, maybe. You're, like, ten. Yeah, so, like, ten. And I went on, like, a vacation uh, to see my grandparents out in Maryland with my mom, and we were riding by car, and it's a long-ass trip, and... The song happened to come on the radio. I don't know what station it was because we were out of town, but the song happened to come on the radio and it was the 11 minute, like the full version. Nice. I don't know. It was like 11 or 14 minutes. I don't even remember. 14 anymore. minutes. It's yeah, 14, like 14 minutes. minutes. Yeah. It was the full version. So my mom is just sitting there and my mom's like a super, super, super religious Christian woman. Very, very, very spiritual woman. You know, she's not for any of that rap shit. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> here my mom is rapping like every lyric to the entire song.
0: The whole 14 minutes.
1: She is just loving every second of it. Wow. Another great mom moment here on When Hing Wonders of the World. Yeah. Love it. Love that. And um, I don't know, it kind of opened my eyes a little bit. I kind of knew I liked rap music and wanted to rap a little bit at that time and at that age. But seeing my mom like that. And being so moved by the song definitely made me accept wanting to rap more because I was like, maybe I can make something my mom likes because, like, she loves this shit. And, uh, you know, even when it was over, she was just, like, going on and on. She's like, that's rap. This is, you know, like, this is the first rap song. And, like, this is, like, the the fucking blueprint. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) What is she talking about? And she is so cool. But that was experience one, I think, is my mom just that's really awesome. breaking down like how the importance of rapper's delight to hip hop music to me. That's awesome on a road trip.
0: I want to hear about the second one.
1: My second one is the fact that it's in Tony Hawk Underground 2. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Yeah, Tony Hawk Underground 2. Classic. That's yeah, that's a it's a great game, first of all. It's <laughs> one of the greatest games of all time. Maybe but the best un- Tony Hawk. Yeah, easily one of the best Tony Hawk. I don't know, American Wasteland's pretty good too. But mm. <laughs> I don't know, that song's in there. I would put certain songs I like on repeat and just skate to it all day because I played the game so much that like, I don't know, I'm just going to listen to every song on repeat for a day every time I play. And uh, that was one of the songs I used to like.
0: Dude, dope stories. I love that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Trevor,
2: how did you find out about Rapper's Delight? I can't remember. Nice! Right, that was uh, what I was about to say. I, I know. But I I do distinctly remember, you know, like as a kid, just growing up, the lyric hip hop, hippie, the hippie to the hip hip hop and no stop. That that whole thing was everywhere. I had seen it tons of times in multiple iterations. Like just it's a real collective conscious kind of thing that you like to talk about. I do have a distinct memory of purposefully listening to it for the first time. What was that? It was shortly after I had gotten my first iPod. And this was, like, one of the old, like, classic iPods. Like, I think it was the first one that had a click wheel. So, like, still no color screen, just, like, blue LCD. Oh, the gray screen one. It was one of—this was one of the first tracks that I downloaded from iTunes back when I was, like, kind of in that phase of, like, exploring all those songs that I had heard, like— In pop culture, over and over again, and I was like, "Oh, I know this song," but what I didn't know was that it was like 14 minutes long, and that that blew my mind. And to this day, like the structure and the length is still my favorite thing about this track because I wanted to talk about the way it's kind of set up, right? Yeah, we've got these three MCs on the track. There's Wonder Mike. Mm-hmm. There's Big Bang Hank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then who's the third one? Master G, right? Yeah. Master G, yep. So in the first couple of minutes of the song, it opens with this like little instrumental break. And then a the bass line comes in. And then Wonder Mike starts rapping. And then in the first couple of minutes of the song, Wonder Mike, Big Bang Hank, and Master G all spit like a really tight, like very commercially slick verse. Yeah. But then when they're done, we get another like quick little instrumental break. And then they come back in for the rest of the song, but it feels like the atmosphere of the track has completely changed. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's a lot looser, and it feels like they're just kind of improvising and like they're just spitting off the cuff. Those like vibraphones come in or something, whatever those are. Yeah. That make us feel distinctly like. We'll talk about those. Yeah. Like it's a distinctly different mood that everything after those first couple verses sets and it's almost like the first couple verses are the actual song and then everything after that instrumental break is like a, an improvised like bonus session that we get Yeah. <laughs> so it's like this track is a built in kind of deleted scenes reel that shows you like what was going on while these guys are making the first like hip hop single of all time like Wonder Mike starts like talking about how he's looking forward to the weekend Master G starts rapping out like a girl he saw at a party Big Bang Hank uh, does all kinds of weird stuff about like superman and like superman we'll get into it and then wonder mike has honestly maybe one of my favorite hip-hop verses ever where he goes into this anecdote about going over to one of his friends yes and like his mom's cooking sucks and he's like he's trying to be polite by not eating it but his friend is like oh no come on have as much as you want and it like eventually he just has to get up and leave. But like he and it, like destroys their friendship for a little bit. Al- almost. But Wonder Mike is sure to include this detail about them hooking up a couple days later and like being yep. like, yeah, it's all good.
1: Yeah. Which I yeah. love. Oh my gosh. They're just like venting.
2: Especially as somebody who's always been a bit of a selective eater. Like going over to my friend's house as a kid for dinner used to be a very stressful experience because I knew I probably wasn't gonna like what their parents were cooking. And oh. I really related to this verse the first time I heard it. Wow. Wow. That's Damn. so
1: interesting. That's
0: awesome, dude. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad you came with that story. That's really
2: cool. Because you you always have been a fucking picky eater. So, Wonder Mike. I get it. I get it. Yeah. He's my favorite MC on this track. Who's your guys' favorite? I, Wonder Mike, hands down, I love him. You guys know my answer. Big Bang <laughs> Hank? Really? Yeah, man. I get so sick of him by the end of this track. I I will agree. I will agree. Out of those first three, like, super slick verses, he has the best one. But by the time we get to, like, his last one.
1: He gets super stupid.
2: I've heard enough from this guy.
1: He got washed. Wonder Mike has mad consistency. I know. That's why I love him. I just think Hank has got just this smooth personality that cannot be denied. I don't know. I'd like to meet the guy. I feel like he might have been, like, one of those assholes I might like.
2: <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure I'll we'll find out what he's like over the course of the next hour. Or so yeah,
0: you, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna learn a lot about Big Bang Hank and those specific like verses. God are you guys ready to get into this Maxton do you have any takes on this
2: song that you wanted to offer
0: <sighs> I didn't have anything as definitive as what you guys offered I was just like now that Ozzy mentioned it earlier I loved the movie Kangaroo Jack as a kid and I'm pretty sure if I had to put two and two together it's probably where I was first exposed to the song but I can't ever I, I don't know this is this is a really tough one to pinpoint for me I just cannot figure out when the hell I listened to this for the first time because I've always known the song, the hit, the hot the hippie, the hippie, like it's just, it's been everywhere forever. I didn't need to listen to it. I like, I, I, I can't remember when I knew it was 14 minutes. I feel like I've always known it's 14 minutes. Like, it's just, I don't know. I can't, like, I feel like I, I digested all these pieces of information about the song and, and listened to snippets of it at different times. And so it just kind of like piled on in a stratified layer of like life events. And so I've, I've
2: always known it. So there were no moments or lyrics in the track that like revisiting it for the show, you you were like, whoa, I had no idea that this part was in the song. Because there was for me. No, because
0: I rem- I remember all of the thi- all of the things that jumped out at me. I was like, oh yeah, I remember listening to this before. Like especially the the fucking the the lowest lane Superman thing. Oh, yeah. Like That's, that that do we do we want to say what that
2: is like right now? <laughs> uh I mean there's no use in concealing it. No. So like in his like third verse, Big Bang Hank goes on this. Little bit of a tirade about being approached by a reporter on his way home mm-hmm. about how great his rhymes are. Yeah. And he starts flirting with her, and eventually they agree to, I don't know, become a couple after she ditches her boyfriend, who is Superman. Yeah. It turns out it's Lois Lane. I love that part. He has these
0: vile bars about how you need to leave him because
2: he wears tights and. He calls Superman a fairy, which is not cool.
0: And he says, Big Bang Pank says he has super. Sperm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. What is the exact? (laughs) Super sperm. What is the exact lyric? Okay. He may be able to fly all through the night, but can he rock a party till the early light? He can't satisfy you with his little worm, but I can bust you out with my super sperm.
1: His super sperm. I forgot about this lyric. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say that I fully feel and agree with him on this whole thing. Uh Superman sucks, uh. and uh, <laughs> I can rock the party. So, ladies, if you're out there, if you're reporters, uh, I can rock the party. Superman sucks. Leave him, because what's wrong with Superman? He's such a cop out. DC didn't even want to publish comic books. Uh, they weren't even called DC at the time. And then, like, they was like, there's no money in comic books. And then, when the comic book industry started coming up through, like, all this, like, like little things people were doing in newspapers and shit, then they were like, oh, we need a comic. So they made Superman, who does, like, everything. And then you have to go from there to break down other superheroes that kind of just do what Superman does, but on a, like, different scale and a little bit better. Team Big That's Bang. That's what Bang. I did. <laughs> that's what we do. That's what I'm saying. Like. <laughs> He's the chaotic evil rapper on this track.
2: A little bit. Although, I feel like there can't really be too much evil going on with rappers. To like This feels like a piece of pure good, you know? I mean, I feel you, yeah. Almost Appreciate. tying
1: into what Trevor was saying earlier, the atmosphere that's created like after that break, it's like you're at a party with them. It's like yeah, you're getting you're getting the environment and the experience, which was like a big thing in hip hop when it was like starting and like Word. everybody was like consistently trying to make sure that they attached the culture yeah. to what yeah. they were doing. Listening to the song like you feel like you're in some kind of like boogie down scenario and people are pop locking around you. you it's like the after it. party. Yeah, Yeah. it's almost like everyone was having fun in the studio and they were still just like recording and people were all just dancing and having so much fun and they brought so many people there that they couldn't stop. So they just kept going. Definitely.
0: (laughs) Are you guys ready to jump into the backstory of Rapper's Delight? Let's do it. Yes. The ship is ready to sail. All right, paint a picture in your mind. It's the mid-1950s and a young Sylvia Vanderpool, then in her early 20s, thought she was bringing her music career to a close. Having made a few insignificant novelty records as a teenager under the name Little Sylvia, the Harlem-born singer decided to prepare for a more secure career in nursing.
2: Not unlike a uh, young Anita Ward.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: Although I think she was going to be a teacher, right?
0: Yeah, similar kind of prospect. On a Hudson River evening cruise, she met Joe Robinson, a forceful and charismatic Navy veteran who persuaded her that music was where the money was at. They married shortly thereafter. You want to talk about Joe Robinson,
2: Trevor? Sure. We Let's see who, what characters we've got so yeah. far. There's yeah. Sylvia Vanderpool, mm-hmm. young woman in her early 20s, just put, closing the book on her short music career she's had, I guess. Yeah. And then there's uh, this, this uh, Joe Robinson fellow who's five years older than her. And uh, he's a guy who's always kind of had an eye for business. He owns several bars in Harlem and... Shortly after meeting her, he gets the idea to pair her with her guitar teacher to create the duo Mickey and Sylvia, who become best known for a 1957 one-hit wonder, Love is Strange, which was immortalized in the films Dirty Dancing and Casino. Oh, yes, it was. Do we want to play a little bit of that? Yeah, I'll
0: play a little bit of that real quick. All right. Oh, fuck. Yeah, this is the one that Pitbull sampled.
2: The guy from the Bahamas? (laughs) No, not that Pitbull. Not that one. This is cute, though. It sounds like a 1950s guitar tune. Yeah, I think so, too. Very cinematic. Very cinematic. You're a big fan of Casino, aren't you? Yeah, man.
0: What was the other one? Dirty Dancing.
1: Big fan of Dirty Dancing. Grandma Liz, the woman that my past grandfather married, if you're out there. I still watch Dirty Dancing. I know you watch it every day.
2: So they're they're successful for a couple of years, but they end up disbanding in 1962, um, after which Sylvia takes a little time off to care for her three sons.
0: Three sons? Damn. She's already in her early 20s, too.
2: That's just how it was back then, you know? You had to populate the world. If I had a lot of businesses going, I'd I'd pop me out some churn. Meanwhile, yeah, Joe Robinson is taking care of his own children, who are a couple of clubs in Manhattan, <laughs> including the, uh, the stylish Bronx Club Blue Morocco, which attracted a number of the black elite of the 1960s from The Temptations and The Four Tops to Muhammad Ali. And according to friends, Joe's social circle was wide enough to accommodate folks like Nikki Barnes, who was a Harlem drug kingpin, wow. and Malcolm X. And, wow. after,
0: and years after malcolm x's assassination his widow allowed joe robinson to release some of malcolm x's speeches in album form and according to a source well acquainted with both of them uh her widow said that joe robinson ripped her off over royalty payments Mm. is that
2: a pretty good indication of what his character is like in general
0: oh yeah that's a nice first taste of joe robinson for you he ripped off the widow of malcolm x joe robinson was by all accounts a dapper and streetwise individual who was unlikely to be daunted by the wild frontier aspects of the pre-corporate music industry those who worked alongside him still talk about his formidable presence his mighty six-foot-plus frame, his low-rasping voice, and his spellbinding yarns about the bad old days. A writer who met them in 1981 wrote that Sylvia's, quote, honeyed ways and fake sincerity made for an interesting polarity with the quote straightforward and rough joe robinson who railed volubly against the white music business establishment a lot of those who crossed his path credit him with a certain dark eminence for a long time the word in the music business was that joe often carried a firearm with him There have been suggestions that Joe was also involved in the numbers racket during his Harlem days. One record business contemporary says that Joe was known to be a major player in that arena and was believed to have mafia ties. And uh, Robert Ford, an R&B columnist for Billboard in the 70s, said, I was clearly told that if Joe Robinson came in the room, you stopped talking. Everyone knew this was not a man to be messed with. So Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph. Quite, Quite a duo. Mary and Joseph.
1: Opposites attract? I guess so. I like this Joe guy. I think I should write a movie about this guy.
2: So let's fast forward to the late 70s. Joe and Sylvia have this decade-long kind of record label endeavor called All Platinum going, but it's beginning to peter out at this point in the midst of the ongoing disco craze. Bomber. Uh, Not really sure what else to do. Joe approaches an old acquaintance from his past, Morris Moe Levy of the Bronx. Mo Levy! Who was the proprietor of the nightclub Birdland back in the mid-50s, which was like a fabled New York jazz shrine. The Sopranos character Hesh is said to be modeled after Mo Levy. Beautiful. It was widely known that this guy Levy owed much of his power to some serious connections with the Sicilian business community, and in particular, with New York's Genovese family. But to the desperate Joe Robinson of 1979, Levy was less a semi-veiled villain than a friendly fellow entrepreneur, a transgenerational survivor in the turbulent music game, and a man who'd never had to toe the corporate line.
0: One Saturday afternoon, the spring of 1979, Joe Robinson made the two-hour drive from Inglewood up to Ghent, New York, where Mo Levy was hosting the wedding with business associate at his Sunnyview horse farm. Levy's son Adam, 16 at the time, later got from his father an account of Joe's visit to their 1,500-acre spread. He said, Joe just wanted to borrow some money from my father because he was in financial difficulties. My dad reached into his pocket and gave him like $5,000 in cash and said, take care of what you have to take care of with your house, your obligations, and come see me Monday and we'll start a label together.
2: It'll be fun. (laughs) Sylvia... Didn't think it sounded too fun though. She had other ideas about this, uh, about this Levy character, yeah, Mo Levy. Mo problems. She had other ideas about this Levy character. Mm -hmm. She claims she threatened to stop making records unless Joe Robinson bought him out. In fact, like she said, I didn't like him, he's a devil. I'm being honest.
0: So now we reach the point in the story where the seed for rappers' delight begins to be sown. One evening in late June 1979, Sylvia Robinson then 43, found herself attending a party in Manhattan 30 minutes from her home in Englewood at an uptown club named Harlem World. A DJ called Lovebug Starsky was spitting
2: R&B hits for an appreciative crowd. Do you think that was Ringo from the Beatles? <laughs> Lovebug Starsky? <laughs> yeah, Starsky's his last name. <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles were all about peace and love. Amen. <laughs> A beetle is a bug. It could have been Ringo. That took me I'm just, saying. I'm just twenty to... seconds to understand.
1: What I'm actually concerned about is whether or not Diddy got the name for Harlem World Records from that club. Ooh,
2: entirely possible. So Sylvia goes to see Ringo, spin some Stop. records. <laughs> <laughs> Sylvia goes to see Ringo, play some records. He's spinning some R and B cuts. While he's doing that, he he's whipping the crowd into a frenzy by like embellishing the music with his own rhymes and catchphrases and he's just like yelling stuff over
0: some called it rap
2: some people called it rapping and there's a long quote from
0: sylvia robinson here she says i saw him talking to the kids and saw how they'd answer back he would say something every now and then like throw your hands in the air and they'd do it and if he said jump in the river they'd have done it inspiration struck a spirit said to me Put a concept like that on a record and it will be the biggest thing you ever had.
1: Those Beatles are always the innovators. Sylvia Robinson sounds like she's trying to take credit for starting rap.
2: <laughs> yeah, she is trying to take credit for starting rap. No. Yeah. We'll get into that. Well, that was that was the idea she had. You know, why yeah. not make the labels, the label that Joe was starting with, Levy, why not make their first single?
1: The The first first rap sequel. yeah. It is a great idea. I love this.
2: Back in 1979, though, rappers, like, they didn't have agents. They didn't have bookers, managers, or anything like that. So Sylvia didn't exactly have any talent on hand. And she didn't know how to get to them. No, because she didn't live in New York. She was just from New Jersey. She
0: wasn't from the Bronx. No, no. no. Even if she could have found a rapper, most of the rappers who performed in clubs around that time did not want to record, as many of
2: them believed the style was for live performances only. Fortunately, though, her son, Joey Robinson Jr., was able to set her up with somebody. She asked him if he knew anybody, and he pointed her in the direction of a gentleman called Casper, the MC for a local club collective.
0: Even though Joey Robinson wasn't completely on board with the idea of his mom trying to monetize rapping.
2: Right, because it's like a live thing only. Yeah.
0: To lay the groundwork for the first Sugar Hill release, Sylvia went into her studio in August 1979 to provide a backing track for Casper, who was accustomed to performing over records. She signed a funk outfit called Positive Force, and they laid down a lengthy take on that summer's cheek hit, Good Times. And Sylvia herself played... The vibraphone. I love that vibraphone. Yep, that's where it comes from. It
2: completely changes the song. It's a little too loud in the mix, maybe, but at the same time, it just, it really transports. Sylvia's
1: got to leave her mark, man. Sylvia was about leaving that mark.
0: The day that Casper was supposed to come to Sugar Hill, he he ghosted, uh, which I think is perfect. <laughs> Very
2: good. Yeah. Very good.
0: After two or three days of not hearing anything, uh, Joey Jr. and his mom tracked him down early one Friday evening in front of a McDonald's, and Casper's dad, who was a radio personality at the time, apparently told him that he should stay far away from the Robinsons.
2: wonder if that has anything to do with uh, you know, Big Bad Joe. Mr. Joe
0: Robinson.
2: Right. But it's hard to get a record label together, you know, when everybody's scared of you. This is true. Fortunately, Sylvia's son, Joey, has another idea. They get in the car together with his friend, Warren Moore, and they head down to the Crispy Crust Pizza in Englewood. I love that we know which one it is. Because there's this guy who works there, this bulky kid, Henry Hank Jackson, who Joey has seen rap a couple times, and he figures he might be able to do in a pinch.
0: They found him, and they were like, hey, you should come rap. And he abandoned his pizza duties and got in the back of their car with his dirty apron and everything.
2: Uh, Sylvia Robinson recalls there there was flour flour everywhere. everywhere. Real working at a pizzeria hours. Yep, let's go pick up our rapper, this 380 pound pizza
1: guy. Wow, this reminds me of a story when my god uncle quit his manager job at McDonald's. We came to pick him up. He's like, yo, come pick me up. We came to pick him up and he jumped out of the drive-thru window head first. And then he drove us home, and he was like, he got us like a bunch of burgers and milkshakes, and like anything we wanted. And he was just punching burgers and throwing them, wait, them behind him. Wait, wait, wait! He cleared the knees. window with burgers. He like he took everything. He handed us a bunch of shit, and then he he comes out like head first, and then <laughs> he gets in the car and he's driving with his knees and punching burgers and throwing them out. I was like a kid, good role model. This sounds like a cartoon. That was my life.
2: I love it. Continue. So Hank's clearly not a rapper. He is a little familiar with the rap scene, though. He's worked as a bouncer at clubs such as Sparkle and Disco Fever in the Bronx. And he's also managed the Cold Crush Brothers, a popular club attraction whose tapes he'd rapped along to at work. He'd actually only taken the pizza job to pay off a $2,000 loan he used to finance a sound system upgrade for Cold Crush. Hank jumps in the car, spits a little something for them, and they're like, all right, you're in next thing she knows, another one of her son's friends approaches
0: the car, points to Hank and says, he's alright, but my man's vicious. Mr. Guy O'Brien, part of Jersey's one-on-one crew, jumped into the car. And sure enough, Sylvia was impressed
2: with his rapping too and thought, why not enter the group? So that's Master G, right? That's Master G, Guy O'Brien. <laughs> that, that's two members of the gang, but we've still got one more to meet. Luckily, somebody else just happened to be hanging around, walks up to the curb, and he's like, hey, can I try too? It's this Six foot six inch guy with asthma named Mike Wright. And he's actually a friend of Casper's. What a coincidence. Right?
1: <laughs> a six foot six guy with asthma.
2: Yeah. <laughs> he tries to spit a bit, but his asthma messes him up. Doesn't go well. Fortunately, they gave him another chance. And this time, like, he floors them. Sylvia says that she felt chills all over her body. And then she said, The three of you are married. Hence, the Sugar Hill Gang was born. Wow.
0: And so they all signed a Sugar Hill contract, and they all got in advance. The Robinson says, I was about $1,500 a person, but this figure is greeted with skepticism by several people familiar with the Sugar Hill modus. The label would have never, ever handed over such a princely sum to a new sign, they say.
2: But they got paid something, and they were told to show up at the recording studio on Monday, and... There we go. That's the Sugar Hill Gang. That's where the Sugar
0: Hill Gang was born.
1: That's great. Yeah. The story of the Sugar Hill Gang sounds like the best episode of Fat Albert I've never seen.
2: (laughs) Before we continue to tell that story, Max, you had a bit of the ending that you wanted to foreshadow here, I believe.
0: Yeah. So now we've been introduced to each of the three characters of the Sugar Hill Gang. I want to tell you right now, at the end of this story, one
2: of these members will die. Which do you guys think it'll be? I like this game. <laughs> I've read the notes, but I purposefully did not read the last the last bit because I wanted this to be a surprise. Cool. I'm going to say Big Bang Hank. All right. I think like my... I almost want to say Wonder Mike because he strikes me as a character who's just kind of too good for this world. who mm-hmm. would like leave it before his time, really. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just something about it's says Big Bang Hank. He's going to go. I mean, I know most of his story. I know he's like a big 380-pound guy. He can't take that good care of himself.
1: That's why my money's on him.
2: You know, it just wouldn't shock me if by the end of this tale, he's in the ground. Oz, your money's
1: on him too? My money's on him because he left his mark. I don't know. Maybe that's why I like Big Bang Hank so much is because you think he's mortal yeah it, i don't know it just like out of all of them i just could tell that that guy's not rapping he's just being cool on the record oh. he's like oh yeah i'm just doing it I'm doing a thing yeah like but it's like <laughs> but it's genuine fun you know what i mean like everyone else is like i'm like putting 100 percent effort in and hank is just like yeah uh, <laughs> he's just like really enjoying the scenario you know what i mean but like I don't know, he he had a shot, but I get the feeling, kind of what he said about Mike, though, I get the feeling that, like, that scenario of life was just a little too good for Hank and who he was. And I don't know. I could see him losing his life.
0: So Master G is just immortal then.
2: It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he talks about being all different kinds of ages in yeah. his last verse. What if that just kept going on forever and ever and ever?
1: He could probably rap forever, which is like a thing that like definitely inspired me because I could probably rap forever if i cool. freestyled.
2: Cool. Very
0: cool. Very interesting takes. I'm I'm excited to see if you guys are right or wrong.
2: Yeah, now that we've prophesied the death of Big Bang Hank, (laughs) let's talk about what went right.
0: Time to get into what went right. So, the recording of Rapper's Delight ended in an evanescent blur. Better yet, there was a moment of panic in the control room as it all went down. Sylvia Robinson says, while Big Bang Hank is rapping and I'm at the board, the phone rings. It's his boss from the pizza place. And he says if he
2: isn't here in 15 minutes, he's fired. You think I was going to stop? Sylvia also produced the session herself. She was right in there with the gang recording, (laughs) pointing in turn to each members of the group, as was their turn to start rapping.
0: According to Joey Robinson Jr., he says there was magic in there. Quote, when Wonder Mike said the line, America, we love you, we knew then and there it was a special record a miracle record. That's such a wholesome moment. I know. Yeah. It's one of my favorite lines in the song. Guess
2: what, America? We, we love, love you. you. Like, oh, yeah. cool. Thanks. Like, I don't know. He's such a wholesome guy. I know it hasn't aged all, but he starts off with... um. I am wonder Mike and I'd like to say hello to the black to the white, the red and the brown, the purple, purple and, and yellow. yellow. Like he's just, yeah. he's like, everybody get in here. It hasn't
0: aged incredibly well, but I, I think his intent is still crystal clear. The sentiment is so pure. Yeah. I love this guy. Yeah. Wonder
1: Mike is the best. Wonder Mike, I still, Man, that line is timeless. I know. I Because agree. he says purple. who is purple that just goes to let you know that none of what he just said mattered cause he said purple so now it's not about race anymore we're on a totally different level (laughs) and we reached a new level wonder Mike took the whole song to a new level as soon as it started that's all he did He was like, You know, race. He put race in our face and he's like, Purple. He just threw that in there and we were all like, Yeah, purple. We just like vibe with it like it's a real thing, but it's not. He's not, he wasn't even there. That's beautiful when you think about it,
2: honestly. But before the Sugar Hill gang in to go record their vocals, they recorded the instrumental track, right? Because this sounds like. A big long sample of good times by chic but it's not because they didn't have samplers yeah Yeah,
0: they had that band positive force recreate most of the instrumental but there is another musician named chip sheeran who claimed in a 2010 interview that he played bass on the track
2: though there is no official documentation saying he's part of the recording shrug you know there's there's no actual official documentation but i actually played drums on this one Really now? How did you you manage that? You know. (laughs) 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 But yeah, Chip Sheeran, he had to play the same bass line over and over again for like 15 minutes without making any mistakes.
0: Yeah, that was his
2: job. Pretty tight job. I couldn't find any mistakes in the track. All right, discussion question. How much do you think he got paid? $15 a minute. Yeah. A dollar per minute.
1: From what it sounds not much but just enough so that he wouldn't complain. He got paid $70. Oh my god. <laughs> not bad. That's not bad though.
2: Here's a discussion question. Why didn't they just record him playing the baseline once and then loop it? If the Beatles and all those experimental like 60s and 70s groups can do all the weird stuff they were doing, yeah. you can loop a bass line. Yeah.
1: From the sounds of how this like whole thing started, maybe they just weren't thinking that deep into it. It was just like whatever whatever works.
0: I think
2: Ozzy's probably right here. I think they just didn't have samplers in the studio. You can still loop a bass line. You record yourself though. I don't know what's it's. it's I whatever. feel you. I feel That's you. Whatever. Hey, it's whatever. It,
1: instead they did it the hard way. It doesn't sound like anyone that was like in the room would have thought to say it. You got a pizza guy. You got a guy with asthma. Like none of the rappers are going to be like, uh, maybe we should loop the Like, no, <laughs> <laughs> Sylvia, Sylvia is not going to be anything.
2: Well, the instrumental stuff was already recorded by the time they walked in. Like, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. There's a great quote from Sylvia where uh, Sheeran says that he described what was gonna be done with the song to him as, "I've got these kids who are going to talk real fast over it. That's the best way I can describe it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: Sheeran says that, quote, "The drummer and I were sweating bullets because 15 minutes is a long time. And this was in the days before samplers and drum machines when real humans
2: had to play things. I remember it was really rough having to keep that drum pattern up for like half a half an hour. Yeah. For a quarter of an hour.
0: I found another great interview with lots of quotes from a few of the members of the Sugar Hill Gang. So here's an extended quote from Wonder Mike. At parties, guys would pass around mics for hours, so rapping for 20 minutes in the studio seemed like nothing to us. When we made the record, we kept coming up with clever things, and the producers never stopped us. The finished recording was originally 19 minutes long, all the rap done in one take, but we cut it to 15, making the intro shorter and cutting out some party noise. My rap was part planned, part spontaneous. I wanted the started to be powerful and was inspired by that old sci-fi show The Outer Limits, which began There is nothing wrong with your television
2: set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture.
0: So my introduction went, now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. The part where I go to the bang bang boogie, say up junk, the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat, is basically a spoken drum roll. I like the percussive sound of the letter B. To this day, no one has ever been able to ascertain whether Lovebug Starsky or the Furious Five's Keith Cowboy Wiggins came up with the term hip hop. But I'd heard the phrase through my cousin and just started going hip hop, the hip, the hip to the hip
2: hip hop and you don't stop. Wow. Yep. And I'd like to read this uh, shorter Master G quote. I was unknown, but I figured if I rapped about foxy ladies and pretty girls, it would get me more attention. It worked. My line about being the baddest rapper was wishful thinking, though.
1: Was it, Master G? Was it? I don't know. That's what
2: I liked about this early class of rapper. You know, they stayed humble. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You're right. he was an audible alchemist. Made it happen. So So the
2: whole thing went down basically in one take. There were a couple last-minute overdubs to patch up a couple of Mike's lines. But everyone was feeling pretty good about the 15-minute song. 15 minutes it came out to be.
0: And Sylvia Robinson did not even consider editing it down despite the obvious arguments, which began, obviously, with uh, your boy Joe Robinson. She says, my husband said, we can't put out a record that long. I said, what do you mean? We're independent people. I don't care how long it is. We're going to put every word in it.
2: We don't have to go according to what the industry says. That's an interesting look at their relationship real quick, though, isn't it? I mean, you got Robinson, who's this... Big, bad, scary guy that everybody's afraid to even talk around. Right. But Sylvia can talk back to him even and tell him, like, when he starts to call the shot, no, we're going to do things this way.
1: I was just going to take a moment to say women normally are the ones making the power moves and changing things out here. I feel that. Especially in these types of scenarios. And in the early scenarios, the women were the ones so were to challenge a lot, you know?
2: And she was so convinced that all it would take would be one play on the radio to turn this thing into a huge hit. Yes. She said all the record needed was one play. Once it had one play, it was broken. That's the kind of record it was.
0: Yeah. Even though the record only needed one play, nonetheless, Sylvia remembers begging a program at the city's struggling WABC station for play to no effect at all. And other New York stations were similarly resistant. It wasn't until Jim Gates, a jock at WESL in St. Louis, he decided to play Rapper's Delight that Sylvia's prophecy was proved correct, and uh, an order for 5,000 records came in off a few plays, she says. Wow. Her memory of pressing more than 50,000 copies a day is confirmed by JB Moore, an ad sales staffer at Billboard, who remembers how one Queens based wholesaler mentioned that he alone was shipping 25,000 copies of Rapper's Delight per day. Mainly wow. to like
2: black mom and pop stores, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which
2: actually prevented it from
0: registering higher on industry charts. Which is a shame for them, but it did help keep a lot of little stores going, apparently. That guy from Billboard says that he thinks that Rapper's Delight is probably with adjustments from Inflation, the highest grossing single of all time. Cashbox would make the record number four top seller for the year 1980. Way to go, gang. Let me paint another picture for you. Sure. It's about five days after Rapper's Delight just came out, all right? Okay. It's September 20th and 21st, 1979. We have Blondie and Chic playing concerts with The Clash in New York at the Palladium. Good times. Appreciate that lineup with me for a second, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Right? Listen to that. Okay. Now get this, right? When Chic started playing Good Times, rapper Fav Five Freddy and the members of the Sugar Hill Gang jumped up on stage and started freestyling with the band.
1: That's pretty. What kind of balls
2: do you have to have?
1: Man, that was just early hip hop. Yeah. Everybody did that. Oh. Really? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it was just. At the clash show, yeah, because like early hip hop, like they were describing, was more of like a "all right, the party's jumping, everything's hype, somebody rap." That was just like how yeah. early hip hop worked.
2: Yeah, I see where Maxton's coming from, though.
1: But I do get where he's coming from because it's like a big level of that. Mm-hmm. But imagine taking that mind state and then for the first time having that mind state be like glorified a little bit. Mm-hmm. So now they're just doing the same thing they would do on a smaller scale on a bigger scale.
0: I feel i I get where he's coming from too. It's just like you're elevating the culture to a level that it hasn't seen yeah. yet, yeah,
1: it's like if I was like super popping for the first time, I would probably do something I would normally do, but on a bigger scale, yeah, like, you know what I mean, like if I was super popping for the first time in a in a scenario where people haven't seen the thing I already do, mm-hmm. then I would do it, but now I wouldn't have the fear that I would normally have. Like, like if I was a regular guy I'd be like afraid to like oh man I'm not gonna jump on stage in the middle everybody's having fun why would I jump on stage and f- try to freestyle on top of this but if you're already successful for doing that very thing then the confidence like there probably feels like how you just probably feel like everyone knows you there when you walk up like you guys are the guys so you kind of like I don't know it probably just feels like they were like in a party back home So they just probably Felt normal as fuck And they were probably Fucked up
0: Yeah they were probably Almost definitely For sure <laughs>
1: You know so they were just like Okay we're gonna do this I wanna rap Like let's go
0: That's awesome though
1: I do wonder though If it started on the ground Cause you know how Freestyling works
0: Yeah Like I
1: wonder if they were Just like sitting there Like rapping And they start They started getting loud Or was it planned They were playing Good times Yeah
0: And this was about a few days after Rapper's Delight had yeah. just came out, I think someone brought them on stage
1: to do Yeah, it. okay, yeah. That's okay. what that's the they vibe I out. get
0: from it anyway.
1: They were let out. Okay. Yeah, so I, that's it's not that's- like a It's not like, a oh, they just ran up on stage. and took everything over.
0: That's yeah, that's the vibe I get from it. I didn't look for any eyewitness accounts, but I feel like if they're escorted by Fab Five Freddy, they're coming out for a reason. Yeah, I think it was a little premeditated and probably some, you know, Joe Robinson pulling some strings in the background that we don't know about
2: here. Definitely. Old Joe wouldn't surprise me.
1: Here's a theory I have. Okay. It's five days after you get pulled out on stage and you freestyle could that be because you don't remember anything you did on that song?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I bet it says freestyled. I would be willing to bet that they just did the
1: recorded stuff. Do you think so? I bet Wonder Mike was on stage going like, hip,
2: hippie, (laughs) hippie, 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 hippie,
1: Yeah, I imagine so, too. Just like all over the place not like organized correctly.
2: I mean, we'll get into it, but I'm not sure if Big Bang Hanky would have even had any more material. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: We are going to get into it in just a second.
2: Although it was considered
0: something of a novelty, it was released as a single in
2: September.
0: September 79. And it peaked at number 36 in January 1980 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. Ding, 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 ding. And number four on the U.S. Hot Soul Singles Chart in December 1979. Number one on the Canadian Singles Chart. Number one in the Dutch Top 40. Number three on the U.K. Singles Chart. It grossed $3.5 for
2: Sugar Hill Records and sold 2 million copies. Wow. And it would go on to be the anchor of the group's self-titled Cashin album that came out (laughs) in 1980. That uh, fall... Somewhat short of the single success and Rapper's Delight in general in terms of energy. But it
0: features slick arrangements even though one of the label's own musicians derided the record as, quote-unquote, a pile of garbage.
2: I didn't listen to anything, but I bet it wasn't that bad.
0: The thing about this record that's really interesting to me is that it's six tracks long and the 15-minute Rapper's Delight is the last track. And the second track is called
2: Rapper's Reprise. I like it. Yeah. Unconventional timeline.
0: Yeah. yeah. You're a they're, fan? they're
2: Tarantinoing it. They're t- yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know we got the sequel before we find out the origin story. Like All right. That. There you go. It turns Rapper's Tlight into a flashback at the end. All right, but here's
0: why I think it's weird. Here's why I think it's weird. The rest of the record consists of several down tempo soul tracks and a disco instrumental, as Sylvia Robinson did not believe an album consisting only of hip hop music would be commercially viable in nineteen
1: eighty. So
0: you buy the record to listen to Rappers Delight. and It's not even rap music until the very last song
1: wrong. Move, That's-, Sylvia. That's what I said. Tricked. We're rooting for you, Sylvia. I feel like that record
0: might have done better if she just went all in on it and just did a bunch of rap songs and made the
1: first rap album too. You know, I definitely think everybody bought that record to hear something new for the first time. Yeah. That kind of makes me not believe Mm. the whole, like, image of Sylvia being so against the grain. You know what I mean? Because, like, now here we are. You were, like, super about getting these kids on the track to change Mm -hmm. everything. Mm Mm-hmm. And then here we go. It's time for you to cash in on that and then fulfill the rest of what you were supposed to do with that. And I Mm -hmm. thought it was fuck the corporations. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was fuck how this all works. And that's why we put out a 15-minute track. Mm -hmm. Like, were you drunk when you were saying that? Or Mm -hmm. do you remember that still? Because now it's like all of that needs to happen for just a few more tracks and we'll be fine.
0: But they didn't do it. And I think that is a perfect segue into what I believe is the greatest what went wrong section I have ever compiled so much so that I will tell you that it's three parts and it has a subtitle. The subtitle of this week's what went wrong is culture vultures and Ultra ultra
1: plagiarism. Ultra plagiarism. Ultra plagiarism.
2: Let's get into it. Part So, a few weeks after Sugar Hill Gang jumped on stage with Sheik, Nile Rodgers was on the dance floor of this New York club, Leviticus, and he heard the DJ play a song which sounded pretty familiar. Because it was exactly like Bernard Edwards' bass line from Chic's Good Times. Rogers was pretty familiar with that track, having played on it himself. He was also familiar with the burgeoning art of emceeing. But like most people, thought of it only as a live form. He says, when I heard Rapper's Delight, I thought the DJ was doing it live. Then I looked around and saw no DJ. He was standing right in front of me. Dun, 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 dun. A real, if you're the pilot, who's flying the plane moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So Rogers approached the DJ who said he was playing a record that he just bought that day in Harlem. And that song turned out to be an early version of Rapper's Delight, which apparently also included a scratched version of the song's string section.
0: Ooh, where is that? Where is that Discogs listing? I don't know about that one. Rapper's Delight demos. Ooh. So now Rogers immediately set their lawyer loose on Sugar Hill, but the uh, Robinsons appeared unmoved. Adam Levy says they just wanted to brazen it out, see what happened. His father, however quote, told them to give Sheik a good deal and to do it quickly. (laughs) This is a man that knows the consequences of business. We must give Mo Levy that. You do
2: not want Niall Rogers on your ass. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) Do it quickly. Trust me. Give Sheik a good deal. Get Niall Rogers out of here,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, Nile Rodgers and the bass player were actually so happy with his intervention that soon after they presented him with a
2: gold Rolex.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, what? they gave him a meek meal. <laughs>
2: That's ominous, isn't it? Like, here's your gold Rolex. You don't want to know what we would have gotten you. That's yeah. Like, out our way.
1: That's kind of how it is.
2: Seal the deal. What's the death gift of Niall Rogers? It's like the mob. <laughs> Look, I don't care. I don't care what you have to offer him. You make sure Niall Rogers is happy, okay? Anyway, they were pretty happy with the deal. They got a writer credit. And apparently, this is like the most lucrative song that they're associated with now.
0: No, Master G says that Nile Rogers wasn't really happy about it at first, but it is one of his most lucrative compositions because they gave him a credit. He soon became happy
2: about it once he started getting those checks. But that's just the people they did credit, part... So part two kind of focuses on an old friend of Big Bang Hank's, Grandmaster Kaz. Grandmaster Kaz, who was a member of the Cold Crush Brothers, that group that Big Bang Hank used to manage before mm -hmm. he wound up in the gang.
0: And some people call him one of the legendary DJs of hip hop's pre-vinyl history, but that could also just be, you know, Vanity Fair embellishments. I've never heard of him. Yeah, I've also never heard of him.
2: In the 70s, though, he would MC events in the Bronx, and he would rap with the Cold Crush Brothers under his moniker, Casanova
0: Casanova
1: Fly.
2: Fly.
0: Yep. Whoa. Back in the 70s, he met Big Bang Hank, who was originally a bouncer, and Big Bang Hank offered to be his manager. Grandmaster Cass says Hank took out a loan from his parents so he could reinforce our sound system. And to pay back the loan, he
2: got a job at a pizza shop. Which is where he was working when Sylvia pulled up in that car... It's like, mm-hmm. jump in, show me your stuff, spit some rhymes, and we'll see if you can get on this track we're trying to put together. And uh, Hank actually used to listen to mixtapes of various crews of the time and rap along with the lyrics to practice. And as a result, those rhymes he spat in the back of that car with Sylvia... Those weren't his. Not have of course. Those are from these Cold Crush songs. The rhymes of Grandmaster Kaz.
1: Of course. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
0: After Hank dazzled Sylvia Robinson in the backseat of his car, he went in his own mind from bouncer and manager of the Cold Crush Brothers to potential superstar. Slight problem. He might be able to mimic rapping, but he could not write rhymes. Hank.
1: Damn, Hank.
0: So it was that he approached Cold Crush member Grandmaster Kaz and asked if he could borrow his lyric book
1: wow hank
2: and kaz let him
1: do it okay
2: <laughs> he said i didn't lend much credence for the thing at all i'm thinking if somebody wants to use you it can't be that serious anyway they're dealing with a guy who doesn't know his ass from his elbow as far as hip-hop or rhyming is concerned so yeah kaz gives him the book and he takes it with him to the Rapper's Delight recording session. Yep. And then never looks back. Never Kat goes says, back to the Bronx.
0: Never went back to the Bronx. The Sugar Hill Gang was on tour for three years straight. Cass says he never reached back to contact anybody. It was his job as my manager to introduce me to Sylvia, but he was an opportunist and just jumped on it for himself. Hank couldn't rap a package. He didn't change one word of the song. I was Casanova Fly, not him. We took what we did very seriously back then, and you couldn't just call yourself an MC or a DJ. You had to be it. You had to prove yourself
2: or somebody was going to call you out. So none of the lyrics Big Bang Hank raps on Rapper's Delight are his own. None. They're all plagiarized from this Kaz guy. The rest of the songs on the album that Big Bang Hank is on, he did write those raps. Oh, yeah, but nobody's heard of those.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we don't care about those The only
2: Big Bang Hank verses that the world at large is familiar with were not actually written by Big Bang Hank. Yes, sir. And there's a certain kind of really cruel irony to that, considering his last verse on the record is all about Never letting an MC steal your rhyme.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: He tells this very long story about his dad telling him, listen, the most important thing is never letting another MC steal your rhymes. (laughs) If you're going to be in this game, you got to be original. Look at asshole Hank. And according to Big Bang Hank on Rapper's Delight, he's original. This is Hank's defense. I'm going to read you Hank's defense.
0: I can understand why Kaz would say that. And, um, I have nothing but love for him. We used a lot of stuff together, and I guess because he didn't move that magnitude, he was angry because I couldn't bring him in. Some of the stuff was done together, and I just transposed it over. Sure.
1: Yeah. True.
2: Not buying it, Hank. Yeah. Come on, Hank.
1: So, moral of the story, Grandmaster Kaz is the first ghostwriter. Pretty much. of all oh time. Pretty much. Oh,
2: my God.
1: Whoa, I made the notes and didn't even put that together. And Hank's the first Drake. (laughs) Came through delivering it like it was his.
2: Right. Sweet and beautiful. Great quote from Kaz. Since I was six years old, I never let an MC steal my rhyme. He's stealing a line about stealing a rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) He says the set of lines towards the beginning about
0: being imp the dimp, the ladies pimp, women fight for my delight. He said that that was another dude in cold crush named Raheem's line. And uh, Kaz says that he was the one who wrote the lowest lane
2: in Superman bit. That's not one that I would cop to. I would say, yeah, he wrote that one himself.
1: (laughs) No, he owned up to it. I'd be like, the only one he wrote was the Superman one.
2: He took it. It was like, it's all mine. People in the Bronx so associated these lines with Kaz that like they would go up to him and go like, hey, I heard you on the radio. (laughs) And Kaz had to say, no, that wasn't me. It was somebody else. And no, I wasn't making any of this money either. Nope, I wasn't making any money. I'm not on the radio. It's just big bank Hank.
1: That fucking sucks. And you
2: know how old he was when this happened? He's 18 years old. That puts a chip on your shoulder early in life. It's right? Gotta. Yeah.
0: Litigation wasn't an option for him. He was proud, though. He says, I got 110 rhymes. I don't mm. need that. And I didn't know about lawyers or that I could do anything about that. I just took it as a loss.
1: Damn.
2: Sometimes you just got to take the L.
0: Right?
1: Charge it to the
2: game.
0: But, like, what an
2: L. I would have killed myself. <laughs> I would have thought that life was so unfair and that like circumstance had cheated me so badly. I can't imagine if I'm 18, I can't imagine yeah. getting over this. Like I, Ever. Just can't.
1: I would have been so upset. I would have killed Hank. Word. Yeah. Or robbed him. Cause I, you know, like, Hey, cause I can always rap. I'll take your money though. <laughs> you know, I can rap later. You know?
0: So apparently Kaz isn't the only one who knows what Hank did. Back in the day, the Sugar Hill was booed whenever they played New York City. And whenever Ice team made his 2012 documentary, Something for Nothing, The Art of Rap, Kaz participated. But the Sugar Hill gang was shunned. Okay.
2: Now know who that makes me feel bad for? Wonder Mike. Yeah. yeah See, he, Wonder, right. Wonder Mike feels like a special person that deserves all the good things in the world.
0: Right. Yeah. He gets lumped in with Big Bang Hank. He doesn't deserve this fate.
2: Master G, I can't speak to him too much. He seems like a real true neutral character, I think. He's like, look, I don't have much to say. I'm going to rap about girls. People are going to like it.
1: I'm going to go ahead and say that another one of Sylvia's bad moves is not Pushing Wonder Mike to go solo.
2: I agree with that.
1: He could have did it.
2: He's got that star power.
1: I mean, if Curtis Blow can make it. I mean, Curtis Blow is tight now. Don't get me wrong. He's cool. But if Curtis Blow is out here with that shit, Wonder Mike could have did that.
0: So Kaz still resides in the Bronx, and he's continued working as an MC and DJ. He's seen moderate success, and he has the respect of his peers. But he's never seen the kind of cash he could have received if he had been credited on Rapper's Delight. He says he's finally getting a lawyer now. Cass says, you know, for the record, before I leave this planet, I would like to be recognized as one of the writers in that song. It's one of the most monumental things I've done in my career. Do you think he would come on the show?
1: Yes. Ooh.
2: Yes. I feel like it might be worth reaching out. Yo,
0: let's talk to Grandmaster Cass.
2: Yes.
1: Yo, I, I think, think he, he would, would come, come on, on the show. show.
2: I want to talk with him about that,
1: too. Yes.
2: Potential guests. We have Grandmaster Kaz and that guy guy who knows knows everything everything about about the Baja Men. The fuck? Yeah. You got to listen to episode five, man. (laughs) Another
0: one of my friends actually knows Brad Smith, the bassist from Blind Melon. Okay.
2: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So we could get some firsthand Shannon Hoon stories. Yeah. So
0: that's another potential interview for us.
2: (laughs) Great. But yeah, he's he's still doing his thing, but he's still taunted by that one line, you know? Right. Whatever you do in your lifetime, you never let an MC steal your rhyme. OldschoolHipHop.com explains when the true hip hop crews
0: heard the song on the radio, they were stunned. Grandmaster Flash recalls thinking, Sugar who? No one knew what this group was, but nevertheless they broke the sound from the underground and blew it up worldwide. Of course. And that's kind of a good transition into Part 3. three. By the time Sylvia Robinson had made her journey of discovery to Harlem world, hip hop have for several years been the central pillar of a vital and largely unmediated culture that also encompassed the urban arts of breakdancing and graffiti writing. Although the dearth of recorded evidence renders contentious many landmarks in early hip hop history, serious attempts to trace the form's lineage invariably nominate one man as the genre's father. DJ Cool Herc, a Bronx youth who arrived from Jamaica in 1967 as Clive Campbell a 12-year-old music enthusiast. He says he began spinning records in the early 70s after abandoning graffiti in fear of his disciplinary and Catholic father. He was inspired by mobile reggae sound systems that rattled his native Jamaica. He set out to start DJing at Bronx parties, initially in his own basement.
2: And he soon acquired like a cult status for his ability to get the audience out there, breaking into furious bouts of stylized dancing.
0: The dancers would come to be known as break boys or b-boys. In the early
2: 80s, the scene would be associated with track suits and Kangol hats and
1: floor spinning. Yeah, man.
2: Floor spinning. Is that that, is that that thing where you get on your head and you, like, yep. spin around upside yep. down? It was
1: all type of floor spinning, man. Can you do that? Uh, yeah, actually. What? Yeah. That's insane. I, could, I can for sure so breakdance. Breakdancing is fucking crazy. But breakdancing and, like, pop locking and shit, all mm-hmm. of that shit was a part of me growing up and me being a rapper. And, like, mm-hmm. it's so cool because as crazy as the story behind it is this song played in so many dance clubs and shit when my mom was growing up. Like, really, it trickled down to my influence in, like, yeah. hip hop and being a rapper because like through just this song and moments like this in her history, she exposed me to a lot of crazy shit and taught, and like I ended up learning how to pop lock and do all the dances from her time period and shit. But it's crazy because when you think about it, this song kind of broke that mold. Mm-hmm. And like while you can think that, oh yeah, hip hop wasn't getting recognized on a global scale by the people who created hip hop in that sense, for it to be like love of the art, love of the street, these aren't the real guys who was doing it. You also have to appreciate the fact that because it wasn't anyone that anyone knew of that was actually really about hip hop it kind of made the streets set ablaze you know what i mean mm-hmm. like everyone was just going to start doing it to the fullest now because yeah. like fuck these guys like yeah we'll get into that in a little yeah. bit actually
0: over in the East Bronx, another DJ star was on the rise. Former gang member Africa Bimbada, whose real name remains a mystery to this day, had surrounded himself with a troupe called the Zulu Nation. Yeah. Uh, by the mid 70s, Africa Bambaataa was goading B Boys with eclectic fits of rhythmic inspiration, such as funk, afrobeat, and pop. Danceable rock tracks were even a specialty. Anything goes was the ethos, except for disco. Africa said dances in the black and Latino communities change every three months. The music industry, he said, was trying to keep the hustle going for three, four, five years.
2: And so in addition to Herc and Bombada, the kind of third great force in the development of hip-hop was Grandmaster Flash. Flash. Yeah, yeah. By day, he was an intense Bronx kid called Joseph Sadler, an electronic student who built his own DJ gear from scratch. But by night, he was a funk-pumping turntable genius whose name is an homage to a Bruce Lee movie character.
1: I love Grandmaster Flash, and I love Bruce Lee.
2: So together, but separately, these guys all kind of helped push hip-hop to become what it is now. Less of an improvisatory thing and more of an actual Art form, yeah. you know, seating like the DJing to MCing and eventually actual rapping. Yeah. And,
1: and turning the rapping into the main attractions instead yep. of the DJing. But like you guys said, everybody was like, we don't want to rap on records. Mm-hmm.
2: But as the performances began to grow more popular, local entrepreneurs such as Richard T., owner of the Bronx's T-Connection Club, began selling crudely labeled cassettes of live rap performances. So there was a market for this stuff.
0: But Grandmaster Flash instructed his security to destroy any taping equipment found at his shows, though others had a way more laissez-faire attitude towards their profession. Cool Herc says, I did it for fun. Any earnings were spent on more records and equipment. Nobody came in and said, you could take this to a global level or even a citywide
2: level. Grandmaster Kaz says, we were entertaining, but we didn't realize we were entertainers. And even when they were approached by like indie labels and stuff who expressed interest in publishing rap, the response usually was kind of lukewarm. Like Grandmaster Flash recalls how small timers occasionally approached him at club dates with offers to put his act on vinyl, but he would say, nobody will buy it. Nobody would want to buy a record when they can come to a party and see it.
0: African Mabada had a different reason for shying away from the public gaze. We thought that records would
2: be the demise of our parties. Yeah, you know, the scene gets too big. Everybody's going to want to come in and it's not for us anymore. Yeah, The public gets to it and it's not as cool because everyone's doing it.
1: I wonder if that worked. I wonder if their scene lasted longer and it felt cooler to them. Right. Because, I mean, they still went down in history, so maybe they didn't get all the money they needed, but they still went down in history as originators. And, like, I wonder if that kept their scene alive.
2: Not surprisingly... When these guys heard Rapper's Delight, they weren't really on board. Yeah. As
0: far as they were concerned, they were quote unquote nothing but yokels from the wrong side of the
2: Hudson. To quote the Vanity Fair article directly. In a quote Africa Bambada, he said, Who the hell is this coming out with our stuff on records? Grandmaster Flash would say stuff like, There were so many more rhymers that were deeper, so much deeper.
0: And Grandmaster Flash now admits that he made a quote-unquote huge error in waiting so long to record. Whenever the key player of hip-hop's old school look back on the pregnant moment when the Sugar Hill label blazed a trail for rap, there remains among them the nagging sense that it all went down the wrong way. What could have been? Right? Yeah. Just, wow. God, that's what went wrong. That's everything that went wrong. We're
2: mostly done talking about what went wrong with, with Rapper's Delight. The culture vultures coming in, swooping in stuff and mass marketing it before the people who actually knew what to do with it could do anything with it.
0: Culture vultures and ultra plagiarism, baby. Makes sense, though.
2: You know the original rappers. That was their folly too. They admitted we should have done more. We could have beaten them to the punch. Wow! Yeah, like yeah.
0: I, I just don't think I've ever written such a densely packed section of the notes for the show ever. I'm, I'm just. I feel like we emerged on the other side of a giant cave or something. Well, now that we're on the other
2: side, let's talk about what, what came next came next what came
1: next
0: this is where the story of the sugar hill gang kind of stops and the story of sugar hill the label continues grandmaster flash and the furious five actually came to sugar hill records in 1981 and he recorded five gold singles at sugar hill including the adventures of grandmaster flash and the wheels of steel the message and white lines don't don't do it wow if you can't beat them join them yeah man yeah hey okay get your money the message would sell something like a million copies in a month even so according to sugar hills house drummer the golden platinum discs hanging on the walls of the label's offices were unofficial and not ratified by the music industry's governing body the RIAA, because quote unquote joe didn't want to pay them any money what in the fuck he would say i don't need anyone to
1: tell me i've got a double platinum record all i need to do is count the money i kind of feel joe (laughs) I actually did the numbers, I'd press it down myself. I wouldn't pay for someone to do it. I feel that a little That's bit. It's kind of cool. Pressing it down and framing it yourself, making your own gold vinyls, and then sending it to everyone that worked on the track.
0: Meanwhile, in the rap community, there lurked a suspicion of Sugar Hill that went beyond the alleged theft of Grandmaster Kaz's lyrics. DJ Cool Herc, for one, was singularly unimpressed by the seemingly meager rewards that Sugar Hill acts were accruing from their labors. He says, We didn't see the wealth on them. You got to show some of it. They were sucker in them. Rumors swirled about the label's ad hoc way with royalty disbursements. Grandmaster Cass says no one was making any money. Wow! Sugar Hill's female partner, we know who that is, who denies all accusations of financial improprieties, acquired the nickname Sylvia Robin N word.
1: Can I say it? Because I can say it. Sylvia Robin nigga. <laughs> I'm gonna yep. say it like that. Robin nigga. Yeah. Sylvia Robin nigga. Yep. Is that's what she was doing? Kind.
0: Seems like it a little bit though. That's what
1: she was. It was fishy when she was trying to take credit for starting hip hop in the first place. Right. It's crazy how many things could have been better if.
2: If people just weren't always chasing
1: money all the time? Yeah. (laughs) If people weren't always just chasing money, if people weren't coming from like underlying malicious standpoints. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Things like that. Like, I just think it could have been totally different. I feel like that's how she dropped the ball is because she wasn't in in the right mindset and they were probably just trying to like make more money for themselves. But there was also the question of
0: her allegedly rough and ready approach to artist relations. Africa Mbada said, I was hearing stories. Sugar Hill could be like, we're going to make Flash hot now. If Flash gets too uppity, it's going to be the Sugar Hill Gang. If the Sugar Hill Gang gets too uppity, we've going to get up to Spoonie G. And Grandmaster Cass says when Grandmaster Flash crashed his car, they took it away from him, whose story is confirmed by Grandmaster Flash himself. He said, Yeah, Sylvia would lease the cars for everyone, and she would take them away if you didn't follow instructions. It wasn't a business relationship, it was more personal than that. If you got the lady
2: Sylvia mad, if you got the queen mad, you would definitely be in lots of trouble. Just more conversation that she's even scarier than joe robinson
0: right she's the real chaotic evil character that's
1: how it works because like somebody had to tame joe somebody's got to be just as evil and just as smart
2: you think she was always this way or do you think that joe robinson made her this way or do you think she had to turn into that kind of person to survive her
1: relationship with Joe? Ah. It depends on what kind of person Joe was when she met
2: him. It seems
0: like he's always been like this. You okay, know?
1: so then I think she was too because if that's what attracted her, then that was where her mind was at. Maybe. I feel you on that a little bit. You don't just end up with a guy like that not because, like, oh, he was a sweet guy. Like You don't just get finessed. Like- Girls know they know what their guys do. They <laughs> know they know what kind of man he is. Here. What I'm finally
0: putting together here is that Sylvia is just kind of fake, but like that on the low, and then Joe is just balls out about it.
1: Sylvia is probably sweet, but she probably liked liked sweet. how strong and how forward he was. I think they both just had a scheme on the world, you know. Word.
2: Apparently, they were both like so fearsome that like just getting out of his record deal with them really boosted Spoonie G's street cred. Like, oh, if you can make it out of Sugar Hill Alive, you're something.
1: Um, Wow. I was going to say this earlier, but the thing you just said really, really signifies it for me that sylvia is the first birdman which (laughs) ties into hank being the first drake sure the plot thickens i love this (laughs) all checks out sylvia is clearly birdman currency is like one of the only people who's ever gotten out of a cash money deal and like everyone's like currency's the goat like he's the best greatest underground ever to do it because he got out of that cash money deal like how do you get out of a cash money deal and stay alive (laughs) this is incredible
2: so so just recapping Sugar Hill is cash money. (laughs) Sylvia Robinson is (laughs) Birdman. Big
1: Bang Hank is Drake. Yes. And Spoonie G is currency. And I want to go ahead and say, Wonder Mike is Lil Wayne.
2: Yes, Wonder Mike is
1: absolutely Lil Wayne. (laughs) Lil Wayne's the greatest, and like now it's all said and done, and people don't really praise him the way they should.
2: Wonder Mike is absolutely Lil Wayne. Wow.
1: Wonder Mike's Lil Wayne.
2: (laughs) These are beautiful
0: parallels we're drawing. I'm completely eating this shit up right now. Another artist who clashed with Joe and Sylvia Robinson was their house bass player, Doug Wimbish, who composed and recorded with Sugar Hill rapper Millie Mill, a track called Vice that was on the Miami Vice soundtrack album, which was a four million selling hit in 1985. But when the record came out, the credited writer was Sylvia Robinson's son, Leland. Doug Wimbish said, she gave it to him as a graduation present or some shit like that. He said he up to that point always maintained a friendly relationship with the Robinsons. Mindful of the rumors that Joe Robinson kept two pearl-handed revolvers in his desk drawer, Wimbish got himself a lawyer and a gun. He said, I was terrified when it was going down. Word was out that Joe was going to do me. Fortunately, Sugar Hill was going through cash flow problems at that time, and their desperate need for Miami Vice royalties led to a financial compromise with Doug Wimbish.
2: You know who wasn't happy about those cash flow problems? Who? Our old friend Morris Mo Levy. Mo Levy! Mo Problems. Levy's back. Remember that guy? I
0: remember him. Adam Levy remembers that as the label flourished, his father bemoaned the Robinsons' quote-unquote uncontrollable spending. But then again, with Sugarhill turning Moe's minimal investment into a seemingly unstoppable profit gusher, no one was going to get too uptight about fiscal probity. Adam Levy recalls one telling incident involving his father and Joe Robinson. He said they were in the offices going through the latest Sugarhill account statement line by line. Joe pointed to one line and asked my father, What's this $300,000? My dad said, Joe, that's for all the records you took out the back door when I wasn't looking. Quick as a flash, Joe says, it wasn't that much. Neither partner took umbrage at this rough house accountancy. Adam Levy says they grooved on each other like that, Joe and my father. It was like
1: a joke to them. There was no malice behind it. Very interesting dynamic. Very interesting. Wow. But I mean... If you're like strong arming a bunch of guys and you guys are the only ones seeing the profit, I'm pretty sure you guys are going to be friends. Right, right. Like, eh, whatever. Fuck it, we're We're both both rich. So in
0: 1983, even as it was riding high on its commercial dominance of a vibrant new musical form, Sugar Hill was rocked by a paradigm shift as dramatic as hip hop itself, at least in terms of industry practice one by one three of the leading independent record labels chrysalis motown and arista partnered up in distribution deals with major labels the implication for the robinsons was that cash flows of sugar hills independent distributors would be severely diminished by the
2: loss of these three money makers sugar hill might feel the squeeze so what joe robinson does is he flies out to la in november of 1983 hoping to strike a distribution deal with Capitol records yet for all of his primacy in the hip-hop market they weren't able to get a deal going. Wow. Perhaps Capitol had called wind of an internal CBS records memo on Sugar Hill that called the Robinsons' operation the Black Mafia and derided their financial practices. But nobody really knows what happened. But unsurprisingly, CBS also passed on a
1: deal. Bummer. Yeah. That sucks.
0: One friend of Joe and Sylvia's at the time was Reverend Al Sharpton, who insists that the Robinsons' bad reputation was undeserved. He said, I think one of the unfairnesses they had to sustain was that they were always accused of dealing with dubious characters. But in the music industry in the 60s and 70s, everybody you dealt with was considered a dubious character. It only became a scandal if blacks had to deal with them.
1: I kind of agree with Lil Rev Al. Yeah? For the simple fact that I was going to state earlier that the picture is painted as if Joe is like really this bad guy, but... I'm thinking if it's a guy who owns mad businesses in Harlem, he can't play the bullshit. I mean, right. we're talking Harlem in a period of time where it was terrible. Yeah. You know, so, like, being a business owner in Harlem, I'm pretty sure I'm going to stay strapped. I'm pretty sure my morals aren't going to be completely clean because how, you know, how do you start a business in Harlem in, like, the middle of the 60s and 70s? Like
0: That's an incredible
1: point. You know what I mean? So I'm pretty sure everybody that was around Harlem at the time, because, I mean, even in the 90s when you think Harlem, like, Everybody in Harlem was crooked in some way, so if you go further back, everybody in Harlem was probably on some shit. You know what I mean, so yeah I absolutely. I don't think it's fair to paint Joe as the worst person ever. We don't know for sure if he was so gun ho and so mean and so cruel, but then again, he's also dealing with a bunch of people in an industry that don't know how to handle him, so we don't know how he came off to a lot of people. I've come off aggressive to a lot of people, and i don't you know, and you could tell you could say right now I'm not aggressive, but they didn't know me.
0: Yeah, I completely feel where you're coming from there. So, in his darkest hour, Joe Robinson found the answer to his prayers at the Beverly Hills Hotel's Polo Lounge. Lunching there, Robinson chanced upon an old New York acquaintance, a friend of Mo Levy's, and our final character that we'll introduce today, Sal Pasello. He had zero experience in the music game, but he knew some kind of similar skills because federal prosecutors would later allege that he had ties to New York's Gambino crime family. Donald Glover? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Donald Clever. Picello told Joe that he had connections at MCA, the media company now known as Vivendi Universal, that was then suspected of having its own mod ties. He said he could get Sugarhill a good deal there. And so it was, Pasello brokered a seven-figure pressing and distribution deal between Sugarhill and MCA Records. The hastily cut deal was made for reasons hastily cut deals usually are. In 1983, MCA Records was struggling and looking for quick fixes, and brash new management team ignored the subtleties of a background
2: check before handing Joe and Sylvia Robinson a check for $2.2 million. So this thrilled Mo Levy, who finally took this as an opportunity to sell back his Sugar Hill stake to the Robinsons for $1.5 million.
0: Born as it was of murky circumstances, Sugar Hill's relationship with MCA went on to outstrip any cautionary tale about the fate that can befall an indie label, particularly a black-owned one that takes corporate <laughs> coin. Because soon after the deal was consummated, the New Jersey label found themselves hogtied by corporate accounting that somehow put them in MCA's debt and felt like the sleekest of ripoffs. Joey Robinson Jr. reflects that the whole thing was quote unquote a terrible mistake. It didn't help that Sylvia Robinson's ear for hit records was letting her down badly. Even when Sugar Hill had been writing, there was the nagging sense that the label was somewhat lacking in cultural awareness. Records such as Check It Out by Wayne and Charlie betrayed Sylvia's enduring taste for tacky novelty. More telling was the label's rejection of a spec video made for Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel's 1983 hit White Lines, Don't Don't Do It, by a then-film student named Spike Lee and starring a young Lawrence Fishburne. Wow. Completely scrapped.
1: Yeah. Wow. I'd love to see that. So
0: White Lines was probably Sugar Hill's last great record, and an ugly lawsuit between Sugar Hill and MCA followed joe and sylvia robinson got divorced in 1989 but to everyone's surprise they stayed together as a couple afterwards even through joe's long battle with cancer which ended with his death in november 2000 when the original sugar hill studio burned down in an electrical fire in 2002 the urn containing joe's ashes was recovered but most of the master tapes had been destroyed when asked if she divorced joe to dissolve their business relationship sylvia confirmed Sylvia Robinson died in the morning of September 29th, 2011, age 76 in New Jersey from congestive heart failure. And uh, in 2014, it was reported that a producer acquired the rights to her life story, calling her the influential rap pioneer and producer known as the mother of hip hop. The film will cover Sylvia Robinson's four decade career in the music business, her turbulent love life and the mark she made on popular culture, at a defining moment in the evolution of hip hop. The Hollywood Reporter announced in October 2015 that Warner Bros had picked it up and two writers in the Fox TV show Empire had been tapped to tell her story. So coming soon, you know, coming eventually the Sugar Hill Records movie written by the people from Empire sanctioned by her son, Joey Robinson. Wow. Yeah. Coming eventually.
1: If that movie sucks, I will definitely rewrite it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The true version.
1: I'd re- literally write a movie and center it around Joe. Then it would just be
0: The Sopranos, though.
1: No, I wouldn't. It would be the story of the Sugar Hill Gang and Sugar Hill Records. I just wouldn't express it like in the title or anything like that. I would just make it seem like it's a story about this guy named Joe and his uh. life.
2: I would definitely make sure it existed in the same shared universe as Straight Outta Compton and Notorious. Oh, word. Yeah. that Tupac movie that apparently wasn't very good, which is a shame.
0: Yeah, I didn't watch that. that yeah. I
2: really wish that was the big like event. Movie genre that was popular right now, like every couple months we get like a new superhero movie that all takes place in the same universe. What if like twice a year we got a big rapper biopic, and like every three or four years there was a crossover event? <laughs> it could happen. It literally
1: could happen. We just need more really great black directors. The hip hop
2: cinematic universe. You it know. would be a great opportunity to get some more of them in the mix. You know,
1: that's so cool. But I mean, hey, hey, you know, we have we have Jordan Peele. I feel Ladies that
2: it's coming. Like, I mean, come on, we could have a Wu-Tang clan movie, we could have a Jay-Z movie, we could have a Kanye West movie, we could have a Tribe Called Quest movie, yeah. we could have a De La Soul movie. You made that rap yeah. on purpose? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: There's so much there. So many good hip hop stories.
1: There's so much story there in a lot of in a lot of scenarios, especially like what you said, like a Jay-Z movie, incredible. Like everything we heard was just one story.
2: Yeah. I wonder if their movie is going to be as comprehensive as our podcast. (laughs) I don't think anyone is ever going
1: to do that. I uh, (laughs) am. If no one else does. (laughs) I mean, shit. We're sitting here giving away a secret, and if no one else does it, it's very profitable.
2: <laughs> Ozzy, you should see if... um. I, I wonder if they're still casting. You should see if you can put on, like, 200 pounds and try out for the role of Big Bang Hank. I would I
1: would do Big Bang Hank so well. I would I, be a fat, shiesty piece of man. You got to be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me! And oh steal raps, God. of course.
0: Oh you would do something great. I never
1: do. I would do. I would. I would go full throttle. <laughs> I would love that role. Oh, we could yeah. do it like Norbit, or like uh, we oh, could like do, Norbit. We could do it it like Mrs. F- Doubtfire. <laughs> it could just make me fat.
2: No, you gotta. You gotta really commit to it, like all those method actors do, who like oh put on gosh. lots of weight yeah. and then lose it. Like, oh my pizza gosh.
1: every day for like five months straight.
2: <laughs> I, I think Big Bang Hank is a role you could get really, <laughs> really lost in.
1: You become like a fuck nigga. <laughs> (laughs) fully and they're gonna be like oh gosh oh no don't do that and
0: then you can't get out of it and then you like overdose on painkillers and you sleep on accident
2: and then later on like jack nicholson is quoted as saying that he tried to tell you (laughs) jim
1: carrey tried to calm me down
2: right right (laughs) so as her rappers delight The song is currently ranked number 251 on the Rolling Stones list of the 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. The Rolling Stones, the band? Yeah. Whoa. And number two on VH1's 100 Greatest Hip Hop Songs of All Time. Of course. It's also included in NPR's list of the 100 most American musical works of the 20th century, probably because of that great line from Wonder Mike, right? Of course. And it was preserved in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress in 2011 for being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant.
0: I love that. Yeah, I love that. I would say it's significant in all of those areas. Master Definitely. G says, I thought we'd made the first rap record. <laughs> then I was at a party and I heard the Fatback Band's King Tim Third released a few months prior, which featured rapping with singing. I thought someone had beat us to the punch, but they made it a B-side. Ours became a smash. Doesn't count. Doesn't count.
2: Why even say that, Master G? You sound pitiful. Pick your shit up. So they would put out a couple more records between 1981 and 1984, but the Sugar Hill gang kind of fizzled out after that towards the mid-80s. They would reunite in uh, 1999, though, to record Jump On It, a children's children's album. album. Master G left Sugar Hill Records in 1984.
0: since the group's departure from the label, Joey Robinson Jr., that guy we got a lot of quotes from, the son of Sylvia Robinson, has used the stage name Master G., and the real master G and wonder Mike have been in court over the use of the name. And they made a film called I want my name back about the appropriation of the group's name and the stage names
1: all of this from like one little song. I, like,
2: it's not one little song though. It's, it's really it's not hip hop song of all time. It's
1: a clusterfuck. It's
2: an amazing clusterfuck though.
1: It changed lives. It it, it ruined other things. people's lives. Yeah, though so inspirational.
2: Master G and Wonder Mike still perform in a rap group called Rapper's Delight, and they usually tour with Living Color. Which is great. Yeah, Yeah, that works. Living Color are awesome. Wonder Mike is now a
0: born-again Christian who enjoys painting, reading the Bible, sketching, and writing poetry.
1: Cool. Him and my mom would totally get along.
0: Love that. I heard he never really got over that asthma either. Following the departure of Wonder Mike from Sugar Hill Records in 2005, the original members of the Sugar Hill Gang, Minus Hank, have performed as the original Sugar and as Rapper's Delight featuring Wonder Mike and Master G, largely due to a string of legal cases against them regarding uh, the use of the name Sugar okay, but,
2: Gang. But but what about Big Bang Hank?
0: Reports that Big Bang Hank was working as an Englewood garbage man were correct. What? He died at the age of fifty-eight at Englewood Hospital By knew it. It. in twenty fourteen. You guys called it. It was Big Bang Hank. Old he died. Trash so man like you He became were. a garbage yeah. <laughs> man. You trash man. Uh poor, uh poor 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 big Bang hank I love question mark it. poor I, big Bang hank um, he's definitely one of the morally great no. characters
2: that we've come across
0: is he chaotic
2: evil can you do their alignments i don't know about that come i on. mean wonder mike is absolutely chaotic good
1: yeah yeah for sure and like i
2: said master g was true neutral yeah for yeah. sure i would say maybe big Bang hank is probably more neutral evil than chaotic evil mm. Although you know, I hesitate to call any of these guys evil because really they were just doing what they could do a thing. It's like
0: is relatively evil. Yeah, you got to put them somewhere
2: on the chart, you
0: know. Yeah. I
2: mean, Big Bang Hank can't say I was cool with what he did stealing yeah. that one dude's rhymes, but I'm gonna file him under chaotic evil. But do what you like. It's not like he, you know, pivoted that into a successful rap career. He died as a garbage man. Yeah, it seems so very I feel Hesitant to hold anything against him.
0: Yeah. I'm not going to list every moment the song has appeared in other popular media because I'd be here all day.
2: But let's talk about that kangaroo jack scene. I know about it. There's this one scene where the protagonists of the movie either like get knocked unconscious or something like that. And they have a hallucination where the kangaroo oh, that, that they've been hurts. chasing the entire film, who's like stolen money from them or something. A crazy movie. You got to see it. No, I saw so no, it. He's it's got a, a red hoodie, hoodie, I
0: think. And then they owe it to somebody. It's just a big mess. You should it's watch it. It's a big mess.
2: It's a yeah. kangaroo jack, though. It's classic. So they have this... They <laughs> this like hallucination sequence where kangaroo jack starts talking to them and like mocking them and eventually he starts breaking into rappers delight going into the wonder Mike first the,
1: hip hop, the hippie the hippie do the hip hip hop that's
0: a hundred percent what my yeah. first exposure to this was because i fucking love that movie as a yeah. kid i'll we'll have to watch it for the show sometime yeah we will movie night yeah. what do you
2: think it has on rotten tomatoes
0: oh i think i just saw it's like at 20 or something like it's got an h it's eights and An eights,
1: eights? Oh. Was, oh, oh yeah what is does anything, have, does anything have a worse score
0: yeah there's like a lowest on rotten tomatoes the only one i know is zero percent is super Baby's baby geniuses too It's a great movie. Zero percent. Come on. So let's get to a few quick covers. There is a 12 verse British remix of the song that was made with rewritten lyrics recorded for the song's 25th anniversary in 2004 by an ensemble of performers, including Rodney P, Chester P, Kano, Simone, Young Gun, Sway, J2K, Swiss, Baby Blue, Skibbity, Luke Skies, and MCD. If you're in London, maybe you
2: know what I just said.
1: Big ups, <laughs> Mandem's big ups.
2: <laughs> and then uh, Redman also has done a cover of this song, but uh, apparently it's pretty identical to the original. It's the same instrumental. It's just they're rapping
0: it. It's just Redman's hmm. rapping it. It's, hmm. it's the, the same instrumental, same lyrics too. Doing karaoke. Yeah. That's what that is. <laughs> There's a hilarious Brian Williams supercut that The Tonight Show made in like 2011, where they recut a bunch of independent clips of Brian Williams into him rapping Rapper's Delight. Wow. Go look that up if you're a Brian Williams fan. (laughs) I think I might edit a little bit of that in here because it's just fucking hilarious. let's hear it. See,
2: I am wondered, and I'd like to say hello to the black to the white the red hand, the brown the purple and yellow but first I got a bang bang the bogeys so of the bogeys say so up jump the bogeys so of the bang bang
0: let's get into the outro every episode we create attributes for the songs that we review that episode on uh, any scale but it has to be the same scale per episode
2: Do you want to go first, Trevor? Yeah, let me start. Considering, you know, we're talking about an extended cut here, I thought a fun scale to rate it on would be a scale of minutes. Like, what's the shortest version of this? It's like five minutes, right? Yeah. And then the longest one is 15? Yes. So my scale goes from five minutes to 15 minutes. (laughs) All right, so I'm going to give watching the Knicks play basketball nine minutes. Nice. Because I'm not a big sports guy, but got to talk about that Wonder Mike verse. I gave the concept of stressing out about eating over your friends for dinner five Full minutes because I hate that. I gave not holding your friends' food-based anxiety against him twelve minutes because I think that's a really cool move. That <laughs> friendship, a friend in the verse pulls, yeah. Friendship I fucking is love, a point. Wonder Mike. I fucking love him. Finally, you know, playing the same baseline for twenty minutes, no mistakes. That's oh my god. That's a, that's a tough task, and I know we already gave that guy seventy bucks, but. I got to give them 15 whole minutes as well. (laughs) Very nice.
0: I like that a lot, Trevor. I feel you on all those. Yeah. So what about you? Well, for me, I'm actually not going to be doing attributes, but instead uh, I have a binary scale and I will be giving individual lines of the song, either one rating or the other rating. And my
2: binary is uh, delightful or illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> i would have so, i, I, I would have gone with uh i would have gone with spiteful delightful or spiteful that's i really cool. like illegal though <laughs>
0: thanks so uh master g verse 10 deep in in rapper's delight deep into the song he does the quick line like pharaoh Fawcett without her face and i'm going to say that is delightful
2: i think I, that's horrifying what? <laughs> do you think it's more illegal or spiteful <laughs> Pretty, I mean, taking somebody's face off, that's illegal. That's gonna get you in jail. But it's not uh, like, when this isn't literal, it's like Farrah Fawcett. But when you take that, face. but when you take that line out of context, I know what he's saying, you know, it has <laughs> got a famous face. Without that face, she'd be nothing. But hey, guess what? <laughs> so would you, <laughs> right? Uh,
0: I gave the whole have you ever went over to a friend's house to eat and the food just ain't no good. All of that is delightful. Wonder Mike verse some of of the most delightful hip hop lyrics I've ever heard. You already read him, but uh, he can't satisfy you with his little worm, but I can bust you out with my super sperm. Big Bank Hank, verse six. E.
2: Legal. No way. (laughs) Big Bank Hank should have been arrested, prosecuted, and put in jail for rapping the lyrics. Super sperm. (laughs) Big Bank Hank arrested.
1: That wasn't cool. Not cool. Super sperm. But it was like, it's crazy because like now we we live in a day and age where like rap at some point was referred to as like horrorcore it's like all of rap at some point already existed. It's like a Rosetta Stone.
2: Ooh. An interesting thing about the Super Sperm Lyric is that like, I can listen to say Young Thug. Yeah. A rapper who says a lot of perverted, grotesque stuff without batting an eye. He doesn't
1: like sex though. Doesn't like sex. Doesn't like sex though.
2: When I hear Young Thug rapping about the disgusting things he likes to do to other people, (laughs) and he likes other people do to him, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's just young thug. Right. But when I'm listening to rappers delight, Big Bang Hank comes in with this lyric about like super sperm. I'm like, I don't want to hear the words gross. Sperm. That's completely inappropriate. Can you not say that? Just, this is a just, this is a this is a radio <laughs>
1: signal, please. This is a family recording. It was provocative.
2: But, you know, I'm I'm just I'm I'm not a prude. I just think there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah. Finally, Uh,
0: skiddly bebop, a wee rock Scooby Doo. And guess what, America? We love you. Wonder Mike verse
2: four. Delightful. You can just picture the winning grin on his face when he says that. Like, he's really like. You can hear it. You can fucking hear it. You see like a glint go off his teeth as he smiles at the camera. Like, his arms are extending. Guess what, America? We We love love you. you. Like,
0: he's got it. He knows he's got it. And you know who else has got it us. We finished the episode. Thank yeah. you so much a for one. sticking. Our, this is going to be the longest episode we've <laughs> ever yeah, we've dude. made yet, but that was the last one too. The last one we did was the longest so far, but this is if this is
2: any shorter than an hour and a half, I'm going to be completely blown away. Stay tuned Bye. for our next episode—a four-hour dissertation on Barbie Girl. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are we doing next time? We're going to be doing "I Wish" by Skilo. Fun. Let's uh yes. before before we say goodbye, though, let's tell everybody where they can find us.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for listening. If you want to connect with us on Twitter, uh, you can find us on Twitter where our handle is at One Hit Wondercast with the numeral one out front. And uh, if you would want to say anything you want us to hear about I Wish by Skilo, any wishes you may have, please reach out with some impassioned emails or audio recordings to onehitwondercast at gmail.com, all spelled out, for a chance to be featured on the show. But until then, until whenever that may be, I've been Max Stenstrom.
2: I've been Trevor craft
1: I've been Nori.
2: Until next time,
1: stay wonderful. Stay
2: wonderful. Stay wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs>